0: Yeah, my name is Joshua. I have a, a wife, Kara. I forgot her name. Her name is Kara. Uh, we've been married nearly 11 years, so we grew up together. I have a daughter called Eden. She's two and a half, another little one on the way. And um, yeah, and, I'm a, and I'm, a, I'm a poet, and I feel more confident saying that now than I used to. I feel more confident than when I said it to my now father-in-law when he asked me, how will you provide for my daughter? And I said, poetry. <laughs> But yeah, I write poems. My wife and I have lived in, lived in Bath for a long time. And then we left. We've been nomadic. We've been traveling. And uh, we really felt God lead us to London. So we're going to be moving to London next year. And um, yeah, very excited about that. So that's enough about me. I'm excited to be here and, and share some thoughts with you all. I really have a question. A question that I've asked myself over and over and over and over again. And a question that I want to ask you guys this morning. And the reason I keep asking myself this question is because it's so connected to my own spiritual formation. The relevance of this question just never seems to fade, but it also feels incredibly relevant for anyone who is at least considering the story of Jesus. Or for anyone who's even been walking with Jesus for a long time, you might be sat here very boldly saying, I am a Christian. Or you might be sat here thinking, I'm curious about this. Or you might be sat here thinking, I wish I went to brunch, but I can't walk out now. And I think, I think that this question connects us all. And so the question is this, What was it that so undeniably captivated the earliest followers of Jesus, that led them to leave the lives that they had and even lose the lives that they had? What was it that captivated them? And could it be that the awe and the wonder and the manner in which they were so perplexed and bewildered but convicted to follow this Jesus could be possible for us to have all this time later in 2022? Could it be that we have slowly become indifferent to what it is to be standing in front of Jesus and choosing to follow him? And could it be that we haven't always done the best job in communicating what it means to follow Jesus? So the idea of following him isn't as captivating as it was back in the day. So I have a scripture, and you guys know this, if you've been around the church for any time, you grew up reading the scripture in Sunday school. It's a, it's a classic. It's Matthew 4. I'm just going to read, uh, we'll do verse 18 to verse... 22. The whole chapter is phenomenal, but this is right at the beginning. This is Jesus beginning his ministry. In fact, the subtitle I read from the ESV and it says, Jesus calls the first disciples. So I'm like, let's go back to the beginning. Let's find out exactly how this began. Jesus calls the first disciples and this is how it goes. And if you've, if you've got a little Sunday school syndrome going on when in your mind, you're like, I know this story, like this is old. I just ask that you would approach it with a uh, The apostle Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And so we can just pray, Lord, I pray the eyes of my heart would be enlightened. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, which gets confusing if you're reading this for the first time, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then immediately... They left their nets and they followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two more brothers. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee and their father. And they were mending their nets and he called them. And then immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. So twice in four verses it says... Immediate was the response of these men to the idea of following this Jesus. And we've just read this. There is no context before this. There's no, they've been hanging out with Jesus for a little bit. They've been getting to know him. They've been flirting with the idea of following him. This is where it begins a confrontation with this Jesus, mending the nets, and he says, Will you follow me? And immediately they say yes. Now, the reason this has to do with our spiritual formation is Jesus, I think, keeps asking us that question over and over and over again. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? And I have realized as time has gone that my response isn't always very immediate. And it's to do with whether you're just here spiritually curious, because if you are just curious or you've been dragged along here in some way or another, to hear that some men follow Jesus immediately when they were presented the option to do it should at least provoke you to perhaps want to know why that would be. So to understand, we've got to inhabit the story a little bit. So let me give you a little bit of context, because I find this fascinating. I've been diving into this passage for Ten years I've been living in this passage, trying to understand it clearer and clearer. The context is pretty simple. Galilee is a hotspot of religious activity, religious learning, religious education. Think... Oxford you know people are going there to to seek out the the spiritual wisdom of the Torah and of the rabbis it's a place where a lot of rabbis came out of right and so in this culture you'd have a very kind of traditional idea of the young men and women growing up in the synagogue learning the Torah being taught the Torah that's the Hebrew Bible and they'll learn the scriptures and as they'd grow up get to the age of around 12, the young boys would have this option of potentially following a rabbi. So it was a call that you could have. You could follow a rabbi, a teacher, and give your life to learning more spiritual wisdom and insight, being someone who carried the conviction and the understanding of their tradition. But it was a very rare thing to be able to follow a rabbi because you would have to present yourself to the rabbi and then a rabbi would have to look at you and decipher whether he saw himself within you to the point that he believed he could give his yoke, this language might be familiar to some of you, give his yoke the weight of his revelation, the weight of his understanding to you, all right? So it was an option, and it was an esteemed option, but the reality was for most young men, that wasn't the case, and they would grow up to be that age, and, and they would become a young man, and there was no rabbi that wanted them to be following him around, and so they would join the trade of their father and become carpenters or fishermen. Their lives were kind of built around this idea, this expectation that potentially they could move into something, but it would be so dependent upon this rabbi seeing something in them. And there was different degrees of rabbis, right? There was a rabbi that would be able to read the Torah. That was a gift in itself. Just read the text. They'll read what the prophets and the law had spoken of, and she so would learn it in that way. And then there was a kind of a second level where the rabbi was able to give you an interpretation of what the tradition had taught on that text. And then there was a third level, the highest level of rabbinic authority, right? Smecha, And this level of authority was when a rabbi would bring a new interpretation of the text. And these rabbis, and there's not many of them recorded in Jewish history at all, but these rabbis would be identified with one very simple phrase. Lean in, see if you remember this. They would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And they were revered as the highest level of authority, and what they were carrying was revelation from God. Now, throughout the whole Gospels, again, whether you're new to this or you've been around this a long time, throughout the whole Gospels, you will find that Jesus is over and over and over again referred to as rabbi from religious leaders to normal working people you know to every person in society there's a reference where jesus is spoken of as rabbi he's understood as rabbi if you keep reading the book of matthew you're going to stumble upon the point where jesus says you have heard it said but i say to you so one day james and john the son of zebedee are mending their nets one day peter and andrew are going out fishing and on this beach where they've been a million times before they see they see Yeshua the rabbi walking towards them and without a doubt they are beginning to nudge each other what's Yeshua doing around here what business has he got on the beach and perhaps they put down their nets and they kind of put their shoulders back a little bit and sort of present themselves They're young men, you know, They're young men who have known that there was always a possibility to follow a rabbi, but they live under the weight of that not being their story. They live under the weight of being unqualified to do such a thing. Can we get a little charismatic and can you say unqualified? unqualified. All right. And then one day this Jesus comes up to them and he confronts them and he says to them, follow me. And I would imagine that in the, in, the, in the instance with Zebedee, Zebedee was probably the one that said, James, John, get out of the boat. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. Don't worry about the family business. Yeah, it was my dream that my, my boys would take care of the business. But this, this is an opportunity like no other. This is an opportunity to be called out of the life that you're qualified to live into a scandalous opportunity that we can't even foresee or imagine turning into. Their response to Jesus was immediate because their understanding of Jesus was accurate. They had a revelation and a full awareness of who Yeshua was when he asked them to get out of the boat. Now, they didn't know, as you find out in the gospel, they didn't know what Yeshua was really standing for. This happens in Matthew 4. So Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. That's when they heard the manifesto of the kingdom. That's when they heard everything that they had known about the faith being turned on its head. That's when Jesus starts talking about, I'm going to die one day. That's when Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. And many left him, right? So it's not like at this point they fully understand this is what we're in for. But they know the authority that Jesus carries. And they understand that this is an opportunity that they cannot miss out on. Because this is an opportunity that they are unrevocably unqualified to do. They have no qualification to do this. In fact, they might have even approached a rabbi and said, Rabbi, I've learned the Torah. I know the Psalms of heart. Can I follow you? And the rabbi would have looked at him and said, I do not see myself in you. Be gone. Because the rabbi isn't actually interested in what can be done with you. It's not what you can do. The rabbi is interested in who you become. The rabbi is looking at you saying, do I see myself in you? And so in this moment, Yeshua is looking at these fishermen saying, I see myself in you. I know that you could become just like me. So that's why he says, I'll make you fishers of men. So when you grew up in Sunday school and you heard about that and you sang songs about that and you wrote little verses around that, there's a reason that didn't connect with you. Because you're not a fisherman. I'm not a fisherman. So, you know, Josh, follow Jesus. you could be a fisher of men. That makes no sense to me. What you have to do is take your vocation. Take the life that you have built for yourself. Take the understanding of the world that you have, that you're qualified to be in, and understand that Jesus is speaking into it and saying, If you follow me, I will infuse what you do with an eternal impact. I will infuse your life with my kingdom. I will redefine your measure of success. I will redefine what it is to be human. What's your most basic understanding of being? a fisherman. All right, let's use that. I'll make you fishers of men. I will use what you use to define yourself and blow it out of the waters. Are you with me? Yes. So I think the first, I think the first rea- rea- reality is their understanding of Jesus was accurate. So their response to Jesus was immediate. And we just get a little bit familiar with Jesus. We just get a little bit comfortable with the idea of following Jesus. And, uh, and I've realized throughout the last well, 10 years of my life, a lot of it has been spent with a huge comfortability around Jesus rather than an awe and wonder at the idea that every single morning I can get up and follow him. I do think the second thing that happened in that moment on the beach is that somehow beyond the words that are even written in the text, somehow Jesus spoke to an internal, eternal longing in their hearts. That he connected in them something that this world cannot satisfy that he spoke in such a way, and he continued to do it throughout the Gospels, that awoken within them this longing to be a part of something and to be defined by something that nothing in this world could offer them. Now, the great question of our age, and I just love that you got Alpha starting on Wednesday, is who am I, right? It's funny. It's always the question of the age. Who am I? What am I doing here? And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, goes after that like nothing else. And I think in that moment on the beach, Jesus somehow, maybe it was just a look in his eyes into the eyes of these young men. I think he spoke to it. I think he said, if you follow me, I will show you who you are. I know you're lost and I know you're longing. I know you're searching for validation. I know you're trying to find a way to find your place in the world. You don't have to put your hand up or anything, but just acknowledge it if you can relate to that. Because I certainly do. Like so often of the time, like where do I fit in this whole tapestry? What does my life mean? What does my life count for? Who is going to come along and validate me to the point that I wake up in the morning and feel secure about being in my body? When is that going to happen? And we've all tried enough things to realize that we could live a thousand years here and still not find it. But in this invitation from Jesus, I think deep within them, there's a sense of, with this man, I think I might just find it. With this man, I think I might uncover it. Well, my daughter, uh, we have a little rule in the house which has been broken. When Before she was born, I said, "Base." let's never get her in nursery rhymes, all right? Because I don't like nursery rhymes. I'm sitting in the car I'm listening to my music and she's going to grow up learning our music and that's that. And it worked to, a, to, a, to kind of a varying degree. But a moment it changed, and I'm, not, I'm not totally talking about this being a nursery rhyme, but it was a moment it changed when we were in the car and I wanted her to connect with the music a little bit more and I thought, what's a, what's a soundtrack of my childhood that would more connect with her as a child? And, you know, there's Wu-Tang Clan, but I thought, you know what I'm saying? I think, it's, I think, I will, I think we'll do The Lion King. You know what I mean? Because I'll, I'll appreciate The Lion King. So I put in The Lion King, and we just skipped the one, like, um, the Scar song. that gets super intense. But we start listening to the soundtrack. And we've been listening to it on repeat for a long time. And so I've just kind of been going back to that narrative in The Lion King and realizing just how prophetic and how kingdom that film is. So you remember the scene where Simba's now grown up, like he's, he's a lion now, and he's, he's not the little guy that's just rocking around with Timon and Pumbaa. He's, he's, he's a proper lion, and he's walking through the wilderness, and he's lost, which is a picture of us, a picture of me. He's walking through the wilderness, and he's looking for some meaning, and he's looking for some purpose, and he comes along the sage, the desert father, Rafiki, right, the prophet, and he interacts with the prophet, and he's, he's trying to work out who he is, And Rafiki says to him, I know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. And he says, you knew my father? And Rafiki goes, correction. I know your father. And he says, my father's dead. He says, no, your father lives. Your father lives in you. And in that story, I think we can connect the whole gospel message and this moment. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, and if you're hearing this for the first time, Paul is, you know, one of the reasons that the church grew. The church blew up like it did. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Rafiki says to Simba, your father lives because he lives in you. Just stay with me. I'm going to tie this together. (laughs) I think he's making the point that the creature cannot be known outside of its creator. The disciples are confronted with the whole context of why they're here and what they're here for because they're meeting their creator. Simba doesn't know who he is until he's reminded of who he's from. Paul says, I no longer live, it's Christ who lives in me. My whole identity as a creature is now being redefined by my creator. So we constantly live with this question of who am I, what's my life about, what's it made for? And no deep level of self-actualization is ever going to achieve it because we're creatures. We're creation. We need to know who we were created by. And so we have this internal, eternal longing that's desperate to be answered. In me, Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there's never been a creature that has been made with a desire that the world cannot satisfy. So the baby is born, and the baby needs food feed, feeding, and instantly the baby can be fed by its mother. Instantly. The duckling is born, and the duckling needs water, so there's a pond, and the duck goes on water. He says, I have been confronted by the fact I have longings that this world cannot satisfy, which means I may have been created for a world that isn't this one. I am being confronted that my whole idea of being here and being a human and understanding what it means to exist has to be defined by the context of the creator, the context of the designer. And yet we live with such desperate, this deep desire to find validation in every other source that we're actually constantly distracted from the eternal longings in our heart. Because you can get quick fixes pretty easily. You can get quick fixes of validation pretty quickly. So we get distracted from the fact that we have an eternal longing, an internal, eternal, eternal longing. Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungry, for they shall be satisfied. He doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then they will be no longer hungry, and they'll be no longer, you know, thirsting. After- no, no, no. The whole point is that you're hungry. The whole point is that you die unsatisfied. <laughs> I know that sounds bleak, but stay with me. You die Having lived an entire life knowing there's nothing here that's going to satisfy that eternal longing. And your confrontation with the God who made you and the rabbi that leads you only makes that more evident. Does that, are you with me? So I spent a long time trying to find some validation. And there was a point in my life, I've told the story a couple of times, you might, you might have heard it, but there's, um, there's a point in my life that I always go back to where God just confronted him. I don't know how long I've got. All right, you just shut me up. Um <laughs> I grew up in a missionary household, which you know my parents moved my, me and my sisters to Pakistan when we, were, when we were young, and just to love people out there and, and grew up in this environment where faith and philosophy, theology, was right at the core of our home. My dad used to sit with the local Imam with the Bible and the Quran on the table, and they would say, these things don't agree. And they would get out a risk board and a bottle of Diet Coke, and they would spend the evening playing Risk and discussing the scriptures. And I would genuinely sit there and just listen and soak it up. I got family members that are staunch, you know, Cambridge graduate atheists and over the Christmas table just have these phenomenal conversations about life and meaning and purpose and God and the world. And I grew up with this desire of, I want to know more and I want to learn more. when I was about 20 years old, having been expelled from school and leaving with absolutely no qualifications, I got what I call a triple threat, dyslexia dyspraxia and ADHD, a teacher's dream, you know? <laughs> and I left with no qualifications, but at 20, I thought I want to study philosophy because I think doing that route might open me up to some of, the, some of these conversations that aren't happen, happening regularly, but people are still leaning into. So I go on the website, and it just says, if you want to study this course, you need an A-level in philosophy. I didn't even have A-levels, never mind one in philosophy. So I, I, I kind of, you know, let go of the idea of doing it. And then I heard, and I feel like it's the same voice, and I feel like you have heard it before. It's the voice that just says... Follow me. It's the voice that says, what if the world that you've constructed that defines you isn't the only world that you're able to live in? What if, right? So just apply. So I apply and it's pathetic, you know? It's just terrible. I got nothing to say. I, I, my application is basically, I would like to study philosophy. And I think, I think nothing of it. And, and a week later, I'm, I'm living in a house with three free guys and the washing machine breaks. And you don't want to spend more time in a house with men without a washing machine than you need to. <laughs> So I go to a local laundrette, my wife and I are engaged, we're broke, we sit in the laundrette to wash these clothes and try and find a washing machine that works, but every coin goes in and comes out the other side. 20 washing machines, one of them works. So we sit there, these two, two lo- lovebirds, completely broke, dreaming about what a honeymoon could look like that we know we can't afford, and with about 10 minutes, and this sounds like a joke setup, a Buddhist monk walks in. So he's got orange robes, and he's got two big bags of orange, you know, crimson clothes. And he comes in, and he starts trying to wash machines, and I say, none of them work. So you can either go and come back in two hours or sit with us. He chooses to sit with us. He sits down, and I say, you know, very insightfully, you're a Buddhist. He says, yes, I am. And we start talking about Buddhism. And we start talking about Islam and Christianity and philosophy. And for two hours, we just talk about the, the, the good stuff, you know. And it gets to the end of the conversation, And he says, it's interesting meeting someone your age who's interested in this subject. Have you ever thought about studying it? And I said, yeah, I have, um, but I'm unqualified to do it. And he said, where where have you applied? And I told him, the university. And he said, I'm the head of philosophy there. (laughs) And and, and a week later, I got an unconditional offer to to study philosophy. And that, I say I keep going back to that story because that's one of those stories where I have, to, I have to remember it. and As these disciples have to remember it. Just because you're unqualified doesn't mean you're disqualified. And you might have, as a follower of Jesus, you might have succumbed to the fact that, you know, this life, this radical life of following Jesus is reserved for the few. Or you might have, be spiritually curious and be thinking of all the reasons why this isn't for you. I'm here simply to tell you that the rabbi... Now, this is putting my stake in the ground on a couple of theological issues, but I will say it. I believe that every single person on all, all these seats is called by Jesus. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself, right? So I believe that the rabbi looks into every single one of your eyes every single morning and says will you follow me? Will you follow me? And every reason that you have that you couldn't follow him is distinguished by his unconditional love. I was unqualified, but I got an unconditional offer. An unconditional offer renders your unqualification absolutely void. God's unconditional love renders any reason you would have in your mind, you're unqualified to follow him. Absolutely. And a conversation that isn't even worth having. God loves you without reservation and without condition. And I'll just, I'll just end with this. My first week of philosophy, the professor got up, not, not the Buddhist, a different one. And he said, philosophy means the love of wisdom. And over the next four years, you're going to learn how people throughout the ages have dealt with problems of existence through wisdom. And he said in that first lecture, and we will be doing it without the idea of God. Nietzsche, God is dead, right? So we'll do it with pure intellect alone. So the four years of realizing why following Jesus isn't a good idea. What they were wrestling with is can you escape the fear of death without a supernatural spiritual idea behind it? And at the end of four years, my wife, I go out for dinner with my wife and she says, all right, what did you learn? (laughs) What was the point? And I said to her, I said, what I realized is everybody bows to something. Everybody bows to an idea. Everybody bows to a philosophy. Everyone does. Everyone at some point surrenders, obeys, and submits. Every single person from Epicurus to Birch and Russell has taken a leap of faith to say, this is what is going to give my life meaning. And I have decided with more conviction than ever that it is Christ who was crucified, descended into Hades, defeated death, and rose again, who is the only person who has the authority to say, I can give you a life where you no longer have the fear of death. I can give you a life where you live beyond what you're qualified for. I can give you a life where you're continually reminded, you are Mufasa's boy. You are not your own. So I'll end with this scripture and I will shut up. This is Hebrews, what Hebrews two, one of my favorite verses. The writer of Hebrews says this, since the children have flesh and blood, since we're in these bodies, since we are these kind of creatures, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. So that through his death, and go on, Alfred, if you haven't heard about the death part. So that through his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free all who through their lives were held in slavery by that fear. The fear of death. It is only in Christ. It is in no philosophy, no wisdom tradition other than Christ where the fear of death is acknowledged dealt with, and ultimately completely defeated. Amen.